0: Hi, I'm Peter Santoscano, host of Citizens Climate Radio. We highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. We do all this by hearing from some pretty surprising climate advocates. We feature politicians, preachers, and poets. Citizens Climate Radio is designed to inform you about the many ways people are addressing the causes and impacts of climate change. Subscribe and listen to Citizens Climate Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at renourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish.
1: I'm Chandra Kirchner rouse and I work at the intersection of urban planning, policy, and art. At the Metropolitan Planning Council, I work on housing policy, as well as equitable transit oriented development in partnership with a collaborative called Elevated Chicago. I focus on advancing research, policy, advocacy, and outreach efforts at a local organization dedicated to mobility justice called Equiticity. I serve on the board there to help advocate for and sustain the momentum of urban planners through different policy efforts. As an artist, I have my own creative practice where I'm leading a project called the MapLibs Project, which is a living atlas of the spaces that make us remember, feel, and imagine community in the greater Bronzeville neighborhoods, which is a set of participatory projects that engages Black geographies, spatial imaginaries, and different community organizations. And you can learn more about this work at metroplanning.org equiticity.org and the themaplipsproject.com.
2: Earlier this summer, my friend Charlie sent me an email with Chandra's LinkedIn profile and a message stating, you really need to have her on your program. I took a look at everything she's been working on up there in Chicago, her research, how she talked about her work. So I reached out and asked if she'd be willing to be on Climify. Thankfully, she said yes. And I had a really great time talking with Chandra. It kind of felt like I was talking to a philosopher, someone who'd lived many, many years longer than I was alive and was teaching me about the world, climate justice, climate action, sustainability, everything. I was really moved by how she talked about her work, her experiences and why she did what she did. And so I hope in the next hour, you enjoy a conversation with Chandra Christmas Raps. Welcome, Chandra. I am excited to meet you for the second time and have you on Climify today. Um, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. Excited to be here.
2: Yeah. Thank you for doing that. It's, I know it's a, just from listening to your bio, you do uh, seemingly like a dozen things um, you're an urban planner um organizer artist. What did I miss like you've done so many you're doing so many things for <laughs> chicago it's amazing
1: yeah those are those are the main uh main areas of work
2: so I'm honored you have this time with us as you probably have many things to to get tackle there um with the work that you do and with that in mind, I'm wondering how did you get to where you are? Like what, why did you move to Chicago and, and how did you get involved in, in these organizations you're involved with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Maryland, right outside of Washington, DC, and I'm the daughter of a political organizer and a computer scientist. Oh my gosh. So (laughs) my home growing up was filled with questions. I spent yeah. at rallies in and around D.C. and also uh, traveling the coast to go to different children's museums and science museums. And so I was constantly tinkering with things, whether that was my dad showing me how to rebuild a computer from scratch or my mom teaching me about reproductive justice <laughs> and understanding women's rights and yeah. stuff. So, I was challenged to always question things around me and to always be reminded that people built this, whether Mm -hmm. it was the, uh, systems that control our housing in a city, or if it was the toaster on our kitchen counter. And so I think that always sparked a curiosity to ask why and why not? And Mm -hmm. also what if, and so with those questions in mind, I started to pay attention more to the built environment and the spaces around me. My commute from home to school always had me driving through Southeast DC into Northwest DC. And demographically, it was a drastic shift from working class, black and brown, to white and wealthier neighborhoods. And so those raised questions. Why do these neighborhoods look the way they do? when I knew there was technology and resources to build things differently. And so I participated in PowerShift, a major climate change conference that happens um, every other year. And that was my entry point into climate organizing. And I remember as I was a facilitator at that conference, I was writing a paper about the transition from the civil rights movement to the black power movement. So all of these things were, wow. I was, I was wrestling with all of <laughs> yeah. these things at once in this uh, climate space, uh, which at that point um, was very focused on biodiversity and um, energy transition. But I really wanted to think more about what it takes to shift power in the context of race and class, which is what I was writing about. So that really was a turning point for me to think more about environmental justice work and how I could use the built environment to have an impact in environmental justice work. So when I arrived at grad school, I was studying urban planning. And prior to um, starting grad school, I was working in Nairobi, Kenya, as a climate change uh, planner and thinking a lot about these issues at a global scale. And so moving from Nairobi to Cambridge, Massachusetts was a pretty hard- That's a shift. (laughs) It was a big shift for me and a hard transition. And so I met a uh, fellow at my grad school um, named Eric Williams. And he was a low fellow at Harvard GSD for the year. And I was telling him about how I was struggling to transition. And he said, well, you should come to Chicago. (laughs) Wow, Chicago. Yeah, I was like, I've never been. I have family on the East Coast and West Coast. I'm also telling you I'm struggling to transition to a place that I'm in right now. So yeah, (laughs) he said move. He said move to a (laughs) similar
2: colder place.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And so. I took him up on the offer and wanted to better understand the story that I had constantly heard of Chicago being a tale of two cities and um, understand the history of redlining and why it had been so pervasive and successful in a lot of ways in the city. And so I did an internship my summer of grad school and really got to understand not only the power that existed to create disinvestment through different kind of government policies and protocols, but also how much power different community-based organizations had and the ways that they were uh, fighting back against that and spent a lot of time in church basements and wood lawn. Mm and um, at farmer's markets uh, on the south side and at chess tables with elders, um, at libraries with young people and just got a taste for the deep love and commitment that I felt from folks to wanting to reimagine the city. And um, I think the, the tool of imagination is something I use a lot in my work and so I was so inspired by folks' commitment to imagine Chicago differently. So after um, grad school, after doing research on Chicago for my thesis, and being committed to um, continuing the work that I had done in my internship, I decided to move here and, mm. and join join the many uh, folks that that fight to make this city better.
2: That's a wonderful story. I. <laughs> You had some great parents, it definitely was. Um, They had some great influences on you. And I wonder, um, all those experiences, and then you're in Chicago, um, did you find it to be, because I was listening to how you were basically embedded yourself in different communities in Chicago and you weren't from Chicago, and how, how difficult was that for you? Did you find that to be a pretty easy thing to do or, Or was it not?
1: I felt very embraced in many of the spaces that I was in. And I think it was about showing up in the places where folks were most comfortable and and felt a sense of belonging. And so even as I was doing interviews for my master's thesis, I always asked folks to tell me the place where they feel at home and I'll meet Mm. you there. And so, oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, and so I think chatting with folks at their kitchen tables, on the couch in their living room, at their favorite coffee shop, allowed for a level of vulnerability that wouldn't have mm-hmm. been possible in a library or in a classroom space. And so I felt very encouraged and um, embraced by, by those folks. And then I think because I came in Um, Kind of knowing some stereotypes about Chicago, but opening myself up to all the ways that um, Chicago was more than that, folks were really receptive to that. And I was constantly asking folks, you know, where should I go and how should I show up in this space? And um, how can I honor this work that's being done in this space? So folks invited me to cookouts and um, church and festival and I just saw people thrive and and wanted to support that as best I could and as humbly as I could so uh I was really cared for um when I yeah
2: it sounds like it did so they seem to view you as like a member of the family or community not, not as like an outsider
1: yeah and I think that's a spirit of the city that is so um intoxicating and um just joyful. And so I think that folks have so much that they want to share with, with visitors, and they also want a lot of space to, mm-hmm. to be able to share that. And I had a lot of time on my hand as someone who was new for the city. <laughs> so always would embrace an invitation um, to, to feel a part of a place. And I also think I felt this immense collaborative spirit as well, I felt like there was enough room for everyone to win. There wasn't necessarily competition for uh, mm-hmm. one particular um, type of artist or one particular type of organizer. And so I wanted to um, lean into that. And And whenever I had an opportunity, I wanted to share that with other people and the ways that they had done that for me.
2: So it seems like they, view, like I said, viewed you as, part of the community or family how did you view yourself in that situation where did you view view yourself as also part of that community or still as that sort of you know agnostic role there
1: yeah so I've been revising I think my story um about myself coming to Chicago for for that very reason I used to tell the story that I fell in love with Chicago. And that is what brought me back. And I loved this place and I wanted to um, care for it and the ways that folks had cared for me. But I think when I reflect on the folks that I've met, they were mostly black women that held different uh, seats in lots of different industries and areas, whether that was politicians, artists, uh, engineers, entrepreneurs. And I think I was really falling in love with myself because I was able oh, to wow. see myself reflected in so many different areas That's, and it more felt possible here than, than it ever had for me. Um, it must
2: have been a pretty amazing feeling, right?
1: Yes, for sure. For sure. And just to know that I could be a artist turned engineer or an entrepreneur turned politician or, you know, whatever these... Uh, career paths that I saw I always saw myself reflected mm. back and I was also attuned to the best parts of myself in all of these spaces because folks created space for me to to be and so mm. I was more likely to be vulnerable more likely to uh, be myself and so that that really was a part of my story of moving here
2: yeah was I'm thinking about you know my past experiences as a designer maybe working with a community and um your your story there I think presents a lot of like truths and um I don't want to say best practices because that sounds like that sounds icky but it that uh, that idea of just really understanding the people that you're working with in whatever it doesn't have to be a design But definitely from this perspective of myself as a designer, um, that's not something I think I ever got to like that, that um, when you said like really falling in love with yourself um, and what you're doing, I never got to that point with working in the communities that I have. Um, What do you think triggered that was that particular understanding for you?
1: I think for me, there was a shift in how I was understanding my role in this work and how I was understanding um, what I was fighting for. And so I think prior to Chicago, a lot of how I saw my work was about demanding things mm-hmm. and trying to tear things down and... um coming from this place of being very demand-oriented. And what I was building community around was the shared pain of always Mm -hmm. trying to demand these things. But I think the switch for me was about just modeling what is possible and saying that we already can create the world that we know we deserve. And there are all these moments and opportunities to practice what liberation looks like to reimagine these systems that work for people. Um, And so I started to build community around shared possibility and shared purpose. And that allowed me to take a much more abundant lens on who I could be and who I could be in relationship with. And so it opened me up to the ways that I have these different facets of myself and therefore can connect with different people. And also I need to model the ways that I want other people to love this city by being in loving relationship with myself and the people around me. So again, it was a a shift from pain to possibility because I had done work to hear myself and also done work to ask community to hold me accountable in that journey. So that was a big shift for me.
2: From pain to possibility. I, th- I love that as just, that's your motto or, or how you, their mantra for how you work. And, and you're totally right. Like that idea of loving yourself, people can't love you if you don't love yourself. And I think that's, that's a lesson that I'm, I'm still learning, right? It's not something that I'm, I'm, I'm very like critical of myself. I think we all are, but I, I'm seemingly very, very critical of myself. So it's, it's hard for me to get there. Um, so after you did that um, in Chicago, like what was the, then how long of a timeline was it before you started at the Metropolitan Planning Group?
1: Yeah, so I moved to Chicago summer of 2019, right after I graduated. And I was working for about uh, two and a half years um, prior to joining Metropolitan Planning Council.
2: About two years. And so within, obviously in your current job, um, I'm guessing that you're taking all of those lessons, all of those emotions and and everything that you took from what you did in 2019, right? um, Into your job now is, um, and, are you finding like there are um, even more or different effective ways to, to help the community through your job um, different from what you were doing before?
1: Yes, I think the role I had prior to this was a national role. And so my scope was very wide and now working at a uh, local organization that looks at a region scale, I'm able to be very focused uh, with my work and also be able to think through how to be in better relationship with the different government partners that I work with and um, different community partners in order to really restore broken relationships between mm. government and its constituents. and ways that a lot of these community uh, development corporations and community-based organizations had to fill the gaps of development during urban renewal and disinvestment. Um, And so having that resurgence happen um, and now thinking about the relationship that needs to exist between these groups is uh, a huge priority for Mm -hmm. me.
2: I'm guessing it's you know, this is just a outsider guess, but I'm guessing that the, there is a fairly broken relationship between the politics, the politicians, the government, and and the communities you're working with.
1: Absolutely, and I think I do this work because I know it can be better, yeah. and I think there is often a framing from government around what do you want to see in the next 50 years and communities are often saying "Well, what have you done (laughs) to address the past 50 years of harm and trauma and so a lot of my work is about mediating conflict in order to better um, understand how these groups can work together and what does it mean to heal from the past, as well as build a more expansive future that works for, for all residents.
2: Do you have a, um, a story that sticks out to you um, in your work where there was um, that, that sort of movement forward uh, that you just spoke about?
1: Yes. So I manage a program called Change Teams, and I work primarily with the Department of Housing to help them institutionalize equity through a range of internal uh, projects. And so I was facilitating one of the workshops and in preparation for it, I read the applications of government folks who applied to be a part of these change teams. And one of the quotes was, um, I am too ingrained in city culture to be be a part of, of this work. And, and that was a personal concern that this person had. And I was like, wow, this, this is the essence of what I'm trying to do (laughs) in my work because it is so difficult to do this work of equity when we're so deeply entangled Mm. in the very systems that we're trying to shift. And I believe our ability to engage the complexity of our systems is directly tied to our ability to imagine. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I want to create a portal or an opening for folks to really begin to reorient themselves to each other in order to actualize the change that they want to see in community. And so the the culture shifts has to start right there in terms of how folks are relating to each other, because people created that culture. And that then has set precedents to make so much of our inequities tolerable. And I'm trying to help facilitate conversations about a future that is irresistible and where folks have to then indict themselves and these systems and the ways that we have um, distanced ourselves from from that potential future where systems work and there is resources for systems like housing. And so I think that was an example of some of the challenges that I'm Mm. working through as I think about Uh, culture shifts and why I start this work internally on the relationship level in order to prepare government to engage with its constituents outside um, of those interpersonal relationships.
2: Yeah, one of the things that keeps on coming to me as you're talking is how the successes that you're having when you're talking about future or what we want the future to be, it's you're speaking from it from a very hopeful perspective. I, I keep on feeling hope when, when you talk. And I think that's really powerful, right? The idea that we can and ha- we do have the power to do better. And it takes, it takes a community. It's not, you know, you against the world or you're the hero. It's that everyone's together in this. Um, do you see that yourself? Do you see your, um, that that's what you're doing?
1: I haven't thought about it in that way because for me, this is about discipline and in imagining myself into the future. Mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of narratives and cultures and policies that are preventing me from even seeing myself in the future. Yeah, And I know I only am here because someone imagines me to be in the future. And so... I want to help others unleash that ability, um, so that we can get to, get to the future that, that we want and that we deserve. So I, um, I think with hope there tends to be an assumption that, that we will win and I think we have, um, work to do (laughs) to get
2: Yeah, definitely. (laughs)
1: So I always um, think about this work in terms of um, commitment and and discipline and um, relationships that Mm -hmm. will get us there.
2: Well, when we first let's let's talk about that topic, because when we first met over Zoom, I don't know, months ago, uh, you mentioned futurism, you mentioned uh, specifically Afrofuturism, can you talk a little bit more about what that means and, and what your interest is in that, um, maybe in your personal work or, or or professional?
1: Yes. So, the first type of planner that I was inspired by um, is a poet and architect named June Jordan. And June she, June Jordan. June Jordan. Okay. Yes. Got it. And she created this plan for Harlem called Skyrise for Harlem. And she created these fantastical building designs and what I would consider a very Afro-futurist, black feminist lens on how to design the intersections of Harlem and the buildings of Harlem to directly respond to the social, economic, and cultural needs of residents. So I think having that Afrofuturist vision, for me, I finally saw my vision reflected back Mm. because for me, I want to be able to see the best versions of myself into the future. Mm. I think that's what Afrofuturism and Black feminism um, allows us to do. And so I am always thinking about how we can write new narratives of the future that are not just focused on everything going wrong, but actually inspire people and compel them to want to be a part of that future. And when I saw her depiction of Harlem, I was like, oh, I exist in that Harlem. Mm -hmm. I don't exist in the Harlem that they now say is gentrified and is unsafe and fill in any stereotype." Um, or, or narrative about that community, and so it, it it didn't inspire me to want to fight to to build a better Harlem or any other type of cultural enclave like that um, in the U.S. But seeing these compelling stories about possibility um, inspired me, and so I want to create that for others to involved hmm. in this will work. That's that's uh
2: there's there's some we're on a similar wavelength here about this and um maybe coming from different backgrounds of course but I I find myself looking at cities or parts of a city and I I see what it is and I always feel kind of foreign to it um because it's not my home necessarily but I I try to always imagine I guess what it what it could look like you know what how could we make this better and what would it be? So I kind of find myself, maybe I'm like in this like metaverse of or multi-dimensions at once where I'm like looking at it now and then, gosh, what would we need here just to make it more equitable, make it more green, make it all of that. Do you, do you also do that as well? Am I the only weirdo doing
0: this?
1: <laughs> no, I think that is the power of design. It allows you to see things that don't yet exist, mm-hmm. and is a promise that they can and will exist um, mm-hmm. with with your work and and with your particular gift to create them. And so, that is absolutely the reason I wanted to go to design school to study urban planning because I needed a reminder of what's possible, and I think the pedagogy of design school is anchored onto that.
2: Yeah, I agree with you totally on that. And um, we're gonna take a break here. We're gonna talk about design and climate and resiliency right after these messages. Do you wanna help design a better world? Start by subscribing to Evolve CPG a podcast featuring the purpose-driven entrepreneurs, executives, and consultants behind the most impact-driven brands in the world. You'll learn how innovative leaders are leaning into their purpose, how better-for-the-world brands are scaling positive impact, and how the product industry is solving some of the world's biggest problems. Be part of the evolution. Find
0: Evolve CPG wherever you get your podcasts and visit EvolveCPG.com to learn more. Climify is all about bringing together climate experts and design educators with one goal in mind, to create a more sustainable world.
1: Eric's discussions are full of interesting ideas and important takeaways, but as young climate designers, we found ourselves left with more questions than answers.
0: I'm Grace, a 2020 graduate from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign.
1: And I'm Rachel, a 2021 graduate from Elon University.
0: We're hosting Climify Deep Dive a mini-series right here on Climify that takes a closer look at the topics Eric and his guests discuss.
1: We'll reflect on things like industry-wide practices, the systemic responsibilities of designers, ethical debates, and more. And as recent grads, we'll be coming at these topics from a student's perspective that may help inform your own classroom discussions. Join us for this mini-series and don't miss any updates to Climify Deep Dives by signing up for the Climate Designers Educators newsletter at climatedesigners.org edu slash climify.
2: So Chandra, welcome back. Um, I wanted to get more into design now that um, you brought it up. We both started talking about design. Um, in particular, I'm, with, with the work you're doing, and, and I'm wondering what you're finding in terms of ways to make more um, or to tell better climate stories or to make better climate resilient communities? Have you found some some things that have been very helpful for you um, in your work in that area?
1: Yeah, so I think for me, I always start with a personal story. And so Mm. in my facilitation and workshop design, we focus a lot on storytelling about Each other and starting with each other, because we all have places that we love, which means we have places that we want to protect. And so, what are the ways that we can learn how to tell our own stories in compelling ways to then tell this larger story at a global scale um, about why we love this place and why we want to protect it? So, I think starting with personal narratives has always been super important to me. And I think the role of spatial imaginaries is why, what I work a lot in, in my creative practice. And so helping folks to think about what types of worlds can exist within their own neighborhoods, and that's based on what they like to do, where they like to shop, where they like to eat and how that can be a form of world building at a block by block scale. And you imagine if we put all of these worlds together, we've yeah. built for utopia. <laughs> and- yeah. Man,
2: that that is I okay, so I'm gonna full disclosure here. I've been working on writing science fiction, right? And one of the things that because I like imagining what the future could be. And and I've been going through these like world-building exercises, right? About who what's different, where this future is, who's there, but I never thought you could use it practically outside of, of doing this, where, like, just like you said, I, lo- I love that idea of, like, this, I can imagine as an, as an educator myself, right, um, having a student do this in the classroom, yes. um, I'm, I'm guessing that people really enjoy doing this, because I, I loved doing, <laughs> <laughs> yes. inventing my, my universe, or whatever you want to call it,
1: Absolutely. So this is what I do with the students and elders that I work with in my creative practice. And so the Mad Libs project that I had mentioned earlier asked folks to complete a word game inspired by Mad Libs. And so they oh, wow. have to fill in the blanks of the smells, sounds, and sights mm. that make their neighborhood feel like a community and answer a prompt of what they wish more people knew about their neighborhood Mm -hmm. and then what they would want to see on every street corner. And these incredible utopic visions that students are creating inspire me so much because we're then able to have a conversation about what are the ways you can make that Building or um, park that you want to see on every street corner reflect all the best versions of the places that you love in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So how can it smell like your favorite barbecue spot? How can it sound like your favorite block party? How can it look like um, your favorite room in your grandmother's home? And so that's what I encourage students to think about, and I remind them that we can start now. these aren't futures that are a hundred years out because someone imagined their neighborhood to look like exactly how it does now and so they also can be the author of that story beginning with the ways that we're able to generate the elements that are most accessible to us which is our sensory experiences we know when we feel a sense of belonging when we feel safe when we feel at home and it's often through what inputs we're taking in whether that's a smell of food that brings back memories, whether that's a song that makes you remember love, or a sight that um, puts you at ease, and so that's the entry point that I use with folks to do world building.
2: Do they ever talk about, you know, in the current state, um, smells that may be bad, like pollution, or do they reference? Do they reference climate ever?
1: For sure. They definitely talk about um, trash as a form of pollution. Or when I would do it um, further south, closer to the uh, more industrial parts of the city, the soot that would come Mm. off of homes, or um, just like the smog that's created. And so, all of those, all of those sensory experiences are, are happening for young people and this is an opportunity for them to name what that smell is what that mm-hmm. um, kind of cloud is and that someone is creating that which means someone can undo it
2: yeah and of course you're telling them that they can be the the force that undoes it
1: yeah so I think they can be part of the solution right so I never want to be naive about the power and privilege that has created these types of disparity. Yeah. Always want to respect them enough to be that honest, but I think it opens up a conversation about what their particular both skill sets are and what brings them joy and that that is actually the nexus for how they can be helpful in our climate change. battle right now.
2: Yeah, that, that answer really is, I think it's really impactful for me and, and hopefully others in that I have been thinking throughout this season about, you know, the, the term climate change, you know, the, the building of the better future um, that we could and can do. And I'm wondering your perspective on, you know, do we really need to rethink how we talk about climate change, how we talk or how we tell uh, the stories that we do about it, what what stories need to be told differently. Um, And yeah, I'll just leave it there (laughs) because I have a lot to, I have a lot to say about this, but I want to hear what you have to say.
1: For sure. So I constantly think about language. That was the entry point for me to think more critically about having a creative practice because i felt like we didn't have the right vocabulary to imagine a world that didn't exist based on the logic of redlining and hierarchy of humans and development um and so for me i want to think about words that bring us into the future that we're trying to build and so We often talk about transitioning, and I've now moved into language around transformation because Mm -hmm. I think it allows us to think more abundantly and about the relationships that we'll need to shift in order to actualize any type of technocratic solution. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not enough to uh, transition from one type of resource to another, but like, a more generative understanding of our relationships with each other, where it's not built out of exploitation, requires a transformation. So I think that is a big part of it. Another part of it that I had mentioned is around how I do this work at the relationship scale and thinking about where all of these moments of courage that I think can happen in government. And for me, that is about restoration. And so particularly about the ways that we're able to restore relationships between government folks and with folks inside and outside of government to reimagine what public institutions can do. And so those are the types of words that I'm learning to use more in my work as I try to get to just a level of clarity and accessibility for folks to see themselves in this work rather than it always being a losing fight of uh, yeah. every report is just that much more depressing yeah. yeah. or dooming when it's like, we can actually start right now in the ways that we are able to mediate conflict instead of punish each other because that's exactly what these types of um types of fossil fuel industries are built upon like the very idea that you can exploit someone or that you can um take advantage of of a community and so trying to create more generative and abundant language.
2: Yeah, words matter for sure. And uh well, what I appreciate about appreciate about what you said um and what you do is that you're at a very human level, right? And it's like the idea of sustaining life or sustainability is about people. It's about making sure that we can live, right? Cause the earth's going to be fine, right? It's, it may kick us off, but <laughs> it's about us and like really finding out about in, at an individual level, like how we can get on board with things and, and make the future we want. I, that's, that's what I really appreciate about your work. Um, I wonder um, for you, because you talked about kind of fixing relationships um, and you're, you are where you are right now. Do you feel yourself, I don't want to say, um, well, I guess, I guess it could be phrased this way, but like moving up the, the ladder in government, do you feel yourself being in these sort of decision-making roles later on? And do you mm-hmm. feel like that's necessary? right do you feel like you can do what you need to do where you what you're doing right now
1: i think that i need to help seed new forms of governance so that i can make the type of decisions that i want to be making hmm. like i think right now we have such a scarcity lens on how decisions are being made, whether that's with budgets or staffing um, or just uh, um, autonomy within government. And I think right now I'm in the process of framing things so that new possibilities can feel attainable. And Mm -hmm. so I want to stay in this institution building and reimagining role. And I don't think that always needs to happen at the top of leadership because yeah. You know, the, the most senior level of leadership can only exist because there's a junior person. You know? And so yeah. <laughs> if you take away a junior person, that you actually have no seniority. You're just a right. regular person. Right. So you know I think there's larger conversations to be had about our antiquated systems of of government and leadership. But I think where I see myself being most helpful in this work, it's about kind of holding people accountable to the best versions of themselves because Mm -hmm. reflect that back in the spaces that we are. And I think as you go up the rounds of leadership, you can often lose sight of that. And yeah. and feel um, that that's no longer important, and so I'm trying to create a space for failure, a space for reimagining, a space for learning, and I think that needs to happen at all levels of government.
2: Mm-hmm. You no, know, I I, uh, I feel you on that one. I was in some leadership before, and some more I did it the less i think the the more detached i was starting to become with why i felt i sh- needed to be a leader in the first place yes and yeah i don't know and if that's that the- is.
1: yeah that is i feel what i'm actively working to shift and yeah. i think is a reminder that the very statement you just gave is a reminder of why my work still matters because yeah, exactly one- folks that are growing in their, in their uh, leadership to actually feel more in relationship with the people that they're trying mm-hmm. to ultimately serve as, a, as opposed to more detached um, and, and to kind of see the ways that they're bringing folks along with them. And I think we have to keep seeding those conversations mm-hmm. for that to feel possible.
2: Yeah, because the, the the more the more sort of leadership you have, you're not doing the work you did before, right? You're kind of right. watching it happen and sort of mediating and managing it. And I just remember one of the second or third jobs I had, it someone told me, well, "We're grooming you to be one of the design directors." And like a month later, I quit and and, and moved on because I realized, like, I, I don't want to do that work. So I'm glad that you are you know what you want to do. I think that speaks a lot about who you are.
1: Thank you. I'm continuing to learn. And yeah. I think that I I am at this place where I'm not just facilitating to an agenda. I'm facilitating to a room of people. And every conversation we have pushes me to, to shift my thinking, pushes me to adjust um, any type of curriculum that I'm building. And that to me is the most um, generative space I can exist in when I have enough room to be that adaptive. And so I think that then translates to how I build a career or um, really have a deeper understanding of my purpose um, and, and capabilities. And I think it's in the ability to take in new information, try things out, fail, and then you know, try another thing and and kind of better understand where I fit into this because not all work is my work, and right. I am learning about who I need to be in relationship right now to um, be able to shift culture of policymaking in the ways that um, feel like they open up new senses of possibility, but I am still learning the right tools and the right pacing for what that work looks like.
2: Do you have any advice for anyone who's listening um, that's inspired by what you're doing? um, If they want to be doing kind of similar work where they are, do you have any advice for them on, on on how to get started in that or, or what the best, best ways to do it are?
1: I would start with, going back to the pedagogy of design point that I had made earlier. And so one of the reasons I I went to design school, and I don't think everyone needs to go to design school, but I do think they need a uh, laboratory space like that, Mm -hmm. where you're able to start with how you want the world to be and reverse engineer that. And I think that's what design school offers that other, types of schools, um, don't offer. And so I think folks should first find those spaces where they can hold that vision and that may be a futurist writing circle where you're just yeah. every week writing a paragraph about how the world could be and you're just submitting it to a room of strangers and then you <laughs> write your next paragraph the next week. So it could look like that for you. Um, or it could be about a group of people where you're just teaching each other new skills and like every single session you just like quick, it's not about being an expert or being perfect in it, but you learn something new and it's like a show and tell kind of space. Like that to me is like the type of generative, abundant world where we don't actually have to be a master of something to teach it. And I yeah. think that allows you to build both the confidence. Um, to both be arrogant enough to think you can teach something, <laughs> but also humble enough to yeah. know that you don't have to, <laughs> you're not going to get it right. So that type of like quick ideation of like, you know what? I read about turtles this week. I'm going to teach you guys about turtles. You know? <laughs> so it was just like,
2: that you know. happens to me a lot when I teach, I get assigned <laughs> things to teach and I'm like, I don't know enough about this. to te-
1: <laughs> Exactly. But I think there is a balance that you need to achieve Mm -hmm. when you're starting to world build where you have to have integrity in what you believe in but also be humble enough to be wrong because that's the Mm -hmm. only thing i know for certain is that we're gonna gonna get things wrong we're
2: gonna get things wrong a lot
1: (laughs) right and i think the more you fail, the more you're able to do it gracefully and humbly and harm less people mm-hmm. <laughs> as you as you do it you know we we would hope you know when you make a big mistake, that mistake gets smaller along the way and so yeah, I think I would encourage folks to like find that community for you and mm-hmm. it could be design school, it could be a writing circle, it could be a book club, it could be a show and tell space and then I would say the next The thing is to really think about if there is something that um, really pisses you off, like to be able to counter that with something that like you really love because Mm. you won't be able to sustain yourself or this planet by only going off of what is making you angry. (laughs) Um, And I think rage is important Mm -hmm. and I should be responsive to rage. And then I think we should set boundaries. (laughs) There's a lot
2: to rage about right now.
1: Yes, there is so (laughs) much to rage, but I would say we need you. And so we also need you whole. We need you rested. We need you well.
0: Mm. And
1: I think what will keep your fire going is the immense joy that whatever you're doing is bringing you. And I feel so much joy when I facilitate. And even if I'm talking about very heavy things, when I see some, when I see a little light bulb go off, I'm like, oh, we're going to be okay. We're yeah. going to be okay. Because <laughs> if that little light bulb went off, then a lot of other light bulbs can even go Even if off. it's
2: just one, right? It's, it's,
1: even if it's just one. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say find that generative community. Um, think about what um, questions make you put you in a joy space and um yeah also be held accountable mm. to your own wellness like i think that ultimately is is what i would you gotta hope. be
2: healthy you, you can't yeah. <laughs> you can't hurt yourself right? you gotta love yourself yeah.
1: yes yes right. the bring it back to the beginning. you know we, yeah yeah
2: you, can only
1: pour from, you can't pour from an empty cup and so um find the places that make you love yourself, find the people that make you love yourself and um, always figure out how you can do things with more ease.
2: Yeah, I think this is all like, it. you can um, move this advice too to um, a lot of the design educators that come to me and say, well, I do wanna talk about climate. I do wanna talk about community, but I don't feel like I know enough about it. But what you just said, I think is, Perfect because they are enough. They just, you can read about it, you can, and then be honest, like with the students, like, I'm learning about this, like you. Let's learn about it together. Let's make mistakes, yeah. but let's do something today because we can't wait till tomorrow. Yes. Not, not enough time to do that.
1: Yes. I think that type of transparency and vulnerability, particularly in teaching, is revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And I think it, what it, it is what can make this work most accessible to students, because I remember what it was like to learn from someone who I knew was learning with me. It made me mm. excited to learn. It made me a more honest learner. And it made me a more committed learner because I was yeah. like, we're in this together. And so my Commitment to doing the reading is like tied in their commitment to read two more things (laughs) to prepare me for the next reading. So, like here we go, we're we're reading together. It's not just me, you know, out here alone. So, that was important.
2: Yeah, it's it's hard to do though. I I find you know trying to be like that transparent about when I'm teaching because I do I don't get stuck in my ego or anything, but I just feel like. Gosh, you know, I have to admit that I really don't know what I'm talking about, and it's it's vulnerability, and students can take advantage of that. But I have been working on doing this as an educator, and I do see the value in it. I've become more as I've been older educator. I've been more and more doing this, and um, I hope I hope for the students' perspective that it's that it's helping.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when those questions of ego come up but i always think about who is the audience for Mm
0: -hmm. and i
1: i have those questions of like well if they know that i don't know about this thing what's going to happen and it's like i'm i'm in dialogue with someone when i say that it could be uh, a family member that i was never enough for it could be a teacher whose (laughs) class i never you know yeah you know there's there's always someone that you're in dialogue with when those um voices or um kind of self deprecation come up and i think the more we can name it and then try to transition to the audience that we want to be accountable to that we want to be in a relationship with which is a learning community of students mm-hmm. that are desiring to have their best selves lifted up in a classroom space that already has a type of power dynamic then yeah. i think it'll it'll come with a lot more ease to to share that vulnerability
2: I totally agree. So if if uh, if you're listening, right, and you want to teach more about climate, you can do it, right? And, <laughs> and actually, like the this podcast is sponsored by the Climate Designers Network, and we have a lot of little projects you can pick up and try and and let us know how it goes. And yeah. speaking of which, speaking of which, um, we are sadly running out of time, and this makes me super sad because you have been very inspiring to me. And I'm Thank so glad that I found you on LinkedIn randomly um, to come on here. But my, one of my favorite questions, especially um, uh, for people who aren't in the design classroom, like my listeners are uh, every day, is, is what would you teach if you were asked um, to teach a design class based on all your expertise and passions? Um, what would that class be about or, or what would that project be about? And and how would you do it? This is a tough one.
1: This is tough.
2: (laughs) Right? You know, you want to make it like this huge thing, right? a super important thing, but it doesn't have to be that way. It could be small.
1: So I'm thinking about a class that had a big impact on me, and that was my studio art class in high school. And... As a part of my development as an environmentalist, I started taking recycled materials and building art from them. Mm -hmm. And so I was using found objects scattered around my high school and starting to construct things. And I think the ability to take something that was, you know, considered waste and to like not only talk about the theory of what it means to build new institutions and be able to reimagine the systems that are failing us, but to like actually put into practice with our hands, what that's like, I think it would be a type of black Feminist geography course, where as we're doing readings and discussing the topics, we would also be constructing art from mm-hmm. recycled materials. As you're talking. As you're talking. And I think <laughs> it would be the it would be the small moments of actually being able to build new worlds because we took something that was waste and put it into a new use. And I think that would really warm my high school self to know that I was <laughs> continuing to yeah. drive and, and build I built mobiles out of uh, coke cans or you can like cut them into spirals and like hang these massive installations around school and yeah i think it was playful it was inviting and it made everything else feel just possible
0: mm-hmm. because i had
1: done something that wasn't supposed to be possible right. something that was supposed to end up you know at a recycling at a so, <laughs> it's that
2: human spirit too right you're like making yes. as you just are listening right
1: yes so look out for black feminist geography, black feminist Studio geography. Art course <laughs>
2: <laughs> so yeah it, it can happen right we can do it we can do it in the fall when uh school gets back into session well thanks um, chandra thanks chandra for that idea I, I hope it inspires um and i hope uh your conversation i know it will I think I it definitely will. I was inspired by you today, and it went in places I didn't know it was going. And that that's the best kind of conversation, right? When it
1: thank doesn't you, go.
2: yeah. Um, yeah. Well, where can we find more about you online? Again, I know you said it in, in your bio, but uh, where can we learn more about you online?
1: Yeah. So you can learn more about my creative practice at the map and you can also keep up with the policy and urban planning projects that I'm doing on metropolitanplanning.org and equiticity.org and would love to connect with anyone that was inspired by this dialogue. And I'll just conclude with, if you're transforming something, then you are a climate designer because that is the work that we're in right now. It's what we need desperately. And so I hope we can build together to create this future that we all want and deserve
2: the perfect way to end it. Thanks you, Chandra. Thank you. This podcast is written, produced, and engineered by me. Designed by Bashul Rashik and Mark O'Brien, with music by Casual Motive. Next time on Climafy, we're joined by award-winning climate scientist Stephen Nesbitt, who teaches in Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign
0: you know, doing some very relatively minor things to potentially save the planet. Uh, You know, that the the idea that we can just continue to do what we've done forever is not really backed up by any sort of human history. Um, True. you know, we've faced a lot of challenges as a human race and our species is adapted. Uh, We've fortunately been in a period in the last couple hundred years where we've had very stable climate. We've had very plentiful energy, uh, and that's borne out to be a lot of success and, extending human life and, and it's all great. Uh, but that doesn't mean that any change is necessarily going to reverse all that, and I think people right. are scared, right? They're scared, change is hard. That, yeah, they're scared that if I can't you know, drive my huge pickup truck, at 80 miles an hour, whenever I want, then somehow my life's going to get worse, <laughs> right? I, I just don't see that. So, so I think that technology is going to save us in the end, uh, which is good, uh, but it's also going to take some political will to say, okay, well, let's think about what's sensible here uh, mm-hmm. and make some reasoned decisions. Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.